shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, this is it. Here we go in another great edition of Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero. i got to tell you, there's a lot of great things in the news, a lot of great things to talk about. First off, I think we're going to have to start with an apology. But before we do that, here he is, the man of the hour, too sweet to be sour. And the ladies know he's the man with the power, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? <laughs> Okay, that's that's a uh, that's a record for new tagline, man. I like that. Uh, so I'm doing well, a, man. That is a 1979-80 rap song. So, as a trivia question to all our listeners out there, if you can send me the name of that song, maybe we can find an EMS One T-shirt in there for you or something like that. But uh, old school rap, man. That's going back to when I was uh, 14 or 15 years old, man. Long time ago. Two live crew. Is that is that who we're? No, I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna hazard a guess. Yeah, I don't even. I, I don't want to say who it is, only because then it'll give you the opportunity to find the song. You really got to be rap fans to know where mm-hmm. that came from. But yeah, we're going with. And and when you talk about two live crew, you're talking about late '90s, uh, early 2000s, man. Oh, okay. So yeah. We're, so this we're, is going back to the, this is going back to the Sugar Hill Gang days. Sugar Hill Gang, Run DMC. <laughs> well, even even Run was later in the '80s. Was he? Yeah. Or were they, rather? Excuse yes, they was. So, uh, Kelly, you know, I started off the show, and I think that last week we kind of talked about the ACLS guidelines. And, and here we have, and, and I think that there's a lesson here, because here we have a don't uh, judge a book by its cover. And when we first talked about the ACLS guidelines, just like everyone else that's doing online, I took a cursory look at it. I kind of took an overview at it, and I made an opinion based on what I saw. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a lot of and we do this show uh, like two paramedics sitting in a truck and we're talking about the day's events and we're talking about things like any partners would do. And as I had the opportunity to look through the uh, guidelines more in depth, I got to tell you that I, I'm really kind of impressed with with a lot of the things that are in here. And I, I just want to go ahead and punctuate some of those. You know, first off, you know. The 2015 AHA guideline update for CPR and ECC contains 315 classified recommendations, and I think that's pretty awesome. Plus, they're, they're, they're putting parts in there about ethical issues. They're putting parts in there about education. They're putting parts in there about conti- uh, continuous um, quality improvement, which I think is really important. And, and they're talking about really the, you know, the, how we're performing CPR and, and, and how we're affecting the rate of, you know, the return of spontaneous circulation. Yeah. One of the other things that we talked about as well, Kelly, is we were we were both critical on the um, that there wasn't really any studies done on on the the effectiveness of lidocaine or the the effectiveness of epinephrine. And as part of this new update, there was a study on epinephrine, and they and they went ahead and showed that when epinephrine is used as appropriately, and they're really kind of talking appropriately to say every three to five minutes and, and making sure you get that on board circulating that with CPR, that it's effective. Now, one of the things that I think is a challenge, and as you read the guidelines, mm-hmm. it's saying that we've got to do more due diligence to ensure that we have proper hand placement, that we're ensure that we're going down the appropriate depth, that we're sticking on the, you know, 100 to 120 compressions, you know, and secondarily minimizing the time off the chest, you know, talking about, mm-hmm. you know, let's not worry about the airway as much. Let's go ahead and, you know, use whatever we can, whether it's airway adjuncts, uh, 
you know, uh, rescue airways to secure the airway and kind of keep that tab going along. So I just want to go ahead and say, I mean, you and I are considered to be leaders mm-hmm. in our field. And I went ahead and jumped the gun and I made uh, some comments that I probably shouldn't have made. But but the lesson here is I think we all do this. And, and I think that mm-hmm. if we're going to be passionate about you know, changes. And if we're going to, you know, say things are, you know, at first glance, it doesn't look very effective. We really have to go back and do our uh, and and, uh, have our due diligence to ensure that we can back that Uh up. And I'm coming to you, ladies and gentlemen, to say, I I can't back that up. And I made an error. I went ahead and just like everybody else said, uh, it's a flash in the pan. It's a waste of time. But I'm here to say, uh, upon further review, the play doesn't stand because I'm really kind of impressed with what came out. You know, I, uh, I'm i assuming with the uh, the epi study you're referring to, is there evidence that uh, quicker, uh, earlier administration of epinephrine in non-shockable arrest and, and, and paying better attention to the timing uh, and, the, and the dosing intervals of, of epinephrine uh, has been demonstrated to be a little more effective? Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, the class class recommendations for use, and I'm reading off the guideline right now for everyone. Mm -hmm. The class of recommendation for use of standard dose of epinephrine, one milligram every three to five minutes, was unchanged but reinforced by a single new perspective randomized clinical trial demonstrating improved return to spontaneous circulation and survival to hospital admission that was inadequately Mm -hmm. powered to measure impact on long-term outcomes. Yeah. Um, But still, there's... they still yeah. at least did the study to say, let's use this the right way, and uh, there could be some benefit. Well, you know, the, the Japan study is, has been out there for a couple, couple three years now, and, and it, was, uh, it showed, uh, indeed, uh, higher ROSC, um, uh, but not higher survival to hospital discharge. You know, we need more study in that, and I think most people's objection or most people's disappointment with the guidelines release was that they didn't say anything definitive on epinephrine or spell the death knell for epinephrine um, and uh, I, I think um, I think in that regard uh, the their exp- expectations of most people were, were unfair my take on it that I stated in last week's podcast is, is pretty much unchanged there are no there, there are very few substantive changes in standards now having said that there are a good many tweaks Good many clarifications, uh, clarifi- clarifying uh, optimal uh, things, and, and strengthening their position, uh, their statements on on certain interventions, uh, where the the wording left some some interpretation uh, and some wiggle room, and now they have better science and better CPU, uh, better uh, evidence that says that that those things are or are not uh, beneficial. So so they've you know they've uh, strengthened their wording somewhat, but. Uh, if I had to pick one thing out of all the, the uh, 2015 guidelines update that is most important, um, it's not an intervention at all. It's a change in focus, and that is their change from a five-year guidelines uh, uh, renewal cycle, a guidelines review cycle, to a web-based um, a web-based format where, where they can uh, implement updates much quicker uh, uh, and and have much less lag between emergence of new science uh, and implementation of those recommendations. And I think that 
has the potential to trump everything else that they've done. Um, because one of the, you know, one of the things we were talking about was, you know, the, the epi example I gave, a lot of people wanted to see if, uh, AHA would, would take a firm stand on epinephrine and they, they really haven't, um, or a firm stand against epinephrine and they really haven't. But the thing we need to consider is the paramedic two trial, uh, the, the prospective randomized trial of, of epi that's going on in the UK right now only started enrolling patients in December 2014. So it's been going on less than a year, only only 10 months now. Or it's going to be another couple of three years before we see firm evidence of whether epi is or is not beneficial in car- in most types of cardiac arrest, or yeah. if it is beneficial in some types, what what types in spe- uh, specifically uh, is it is it um, useful for? Right. But with the new web-based guidelines, we won't have to wait an additional two years before we can put that into place. Yeah, we can I, say when the, when, the, when the science hits the street, uh, there'll be a little minimal debate period, and they'll decide what, the, uh, what th- this bodes for our current care, right. and then boom, it's on the web, and we can change our practice. And I think that is, has the potential to be a game-changer as far as AHA guidelines. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I think that one of the things that I found interesting as well, and maybe we'll make this our last point before we get to some news, is they even talked about the impedance threshold device. And mm-hmm. dur- during the Rock study, uh, and uh, it re- predominantly came out of Dallas, and there were a lot of states that were involved in it. At the time, I was working at MedStar, and MedStar was going to be one of those agencies that were part of it, but we didn't get our stuff in on time. We were kind of doing it in the, in the background um, uh, and not really part of the study. Uh, but it, it came out that the impedance threshold device was really ineffective. And mm-hmm. as they've gone on throughout the years now, which is what, maybe six years or seven years mm-hmm. since that study, Kelly, um, now they're, the, the folks um, have really been doing the due diligence to say, hey, wait a minute. I think this really came down to the effectiveness of how we were doing CPR, and, and this is what was affected, and, and it mm-hmm. wasn't really the device. And having done some research on that throughout the years, uh, I think this is a really a device that can make a difference in the return of spontaneous circulation of our cardiac arrest patients. And even in the guidelines, they talk about that, and I'm glad to see that they brought that back around, because I think this really can make a difference with our patients. Yeah, and and my my impression of, of those those recommendations, particularly the uh, impedance threshold devices and mechanical CPR devices, is is uh, AHA's endorsement or support of doohickeys and doodads is rather tepid. Uh, it's it's pretty weak endorsement. They they do state that there is there is no. Uh, uh, study that that indicates the impedance threshold device uh, is beneficial when used alone, or it still may be appropriate though in conjunction with uh, active compression decompression CPR. Um, so yeah, maybe so. Now they also they also uh, uh, give a class two B recommendation to mechanical CPR devices, and you know class two B as far as as uh, um, uh, recommendations it falls in the ah, what the hell it won't hurt. Um, category. Uh, So, uh, you know, do it, but there's not a whole lot of evidence to support it, but we're pretty sure it's not harmful as of yet. Um, And and they make the point that, you know, uh, we don't have a whole lot of evidence that says it does better CPR than a human being, but on the other hand, uh, in these certain instances where you have inadequate crew resources or for whatever reason you're transporting a dead person, uh, whatever your policies may be, um, it may be more capable of, of doing adequate CPR in a moving vehicle. So, sure. um, 
you know, uh, I think, and that's why I said in the beginning, um, nothing substantial, substantially new to report because uh, the, the focus for some time has been on quality of BLS um, with the smattering of a, a, uh, ACLS. And um, I think the, the new guidelines, uh, you know, do even more to reaffirm that, that uh, um, more and more it's turning out that uh, good old-fashioned CPR and early defibrillation are the key and, and most of your, your guidelines changes seem to reinforce that and actually strengthen that uh, uh, that wording. So, right. I think that one of the things, that, and as we get ready to move along, I think that one of yeah. the things to, to, to show here though is that we all kind of jump the gun sometimes and we all look at the changes and, and we kind of, you know, raise our eyebrow, but, uh, you know, even the best of us can make those mistakes. And I'm saying that uh, maybe I was a little bit too hard. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's just the point of, I think when we look at things, sometimes we give our knee jerk reaction, but as you get into them, we're here doing, uh, you know, talking about some of the, the great things. So you guys out there who were sitting in the truck that had some negative things to say about the guidelines, I challenge you to read them. And, and I challenge you to talk about them with your partner mm-hmm. like I'm talking about with my partner here and uh, see if they don't make a little bit more sense to you and see if uh, it, it's something that uh, is going to be, be able to uh, help you deliver some patient care. But, Kelly, with that, let's go ahead and jump to the news. And do you want to give us our first story? Yeah, let's uh, let's look at the the incident in Detroit where the uh, oh my god, the, so horrible. Uh, yeah, jeez, you know this uh, Alfredo Rojas and Kelly Adams, uh, two Detroit EMS paramedics, were released from the hospital after being stabbed and slashed, uh, uh, including in the face, uh, by a attacker. Um, one one uh, scumbag named Michael Montgomery. Um, they have caught the man. Uh, and as it turns out from, from later reports, not only um, uh, was he guilty of this, but the DNA they've collected has linked him to uh, uh, previous um, crimes that were, I think, five years old or more. So uh, we got a, uh, um, if, if convicted of this, this guy will, will you know, go away for quite some time. And we, we caught a, uh, an at-large criminal. Um, well, allegedly. He allegedly. <laughs> alleg- yeah, them. allegedly. Yeah, right. allegedly. Well. Um, yeah, allegedly until a, uh, a, uh, jury, jury of his peers, peers right. decides otherwise. But, but apparently from once they, they got him into custody, they were with DNA evidence, were able to link him to previous crimes. So, uh, this, uh, the picture painted is, is, uh, Mr. Montgomery is not some, uh, poor man who just had a bad day and lashed out. Uh, he is, uh, he has done ill acts before, or apparently allegedly has done ill acts before. But I think it's uh, I think it's just uh, yet another indication that that our job is not safe, right? And we better quit quit teaching people uh, this mantra of scene safe BSI because there ain't no such thing as a safe scene. Um, right. Some scenes are safer than others, but every call has the potential to go south uh, and for bad things to happen. And and, and what happened to. Uh, to uh, Alfredo and Kelly um, is adequate demonstration of that. Yeah, and I got to tell you, man, I mean, horrible when I first heard about it, and these guys were in serious condition, and, uh, you know, Alfredo was attacked first, according to the news reports, and, you know, his partner, who's a 13-year veteran, came over to help, and, uh, you know, we wanted Uh to take care of our partners, and she became a victim as well. And you mentioned it, man. We talk about scene safety all the time, but scene safety, we're good at, at trying to determine if the scene is safe, 
but we're not great at maintaining safe a safe scene. Mm-hmm. You know, we're on the highway. We say universal precaution, scene safety, and we're on the highway with cars zipping around us doing 80 miles an hour. That's mm-hmm. not a safe scene. And, yeah. and I think we've got to be able to change that in the sense of, as you mentioned, scenes could explode at any, at any given time. And are we in the best position to send, you know, 20-year-old, 25-year-old, 30-year-old people into a scene and to ensure that they're going to be safe? One of the things that I say all the time is, and when I talk about from a leadership aspect, Kelly, is I say that, you know, we trust our paramedics to go into somebody's house at 3 o'clock in the morning Uh, and they may not come out, why can't we trust them to help us run the organization? Well, the point that I want to make there is they may not come out of every single house that they go into. And are we doing Mm -hmm. our due diligence as leadership to make sure that those people are going to come out when they need to? And I got to say, I think the answer is no. No, I I don't think we are. I I think we we need to, uh, as a profession and, and the agencies that employ us, uh, need to start doing something more than paying lip service. What do service. we do? What do we do? What's the uh, well? First of all, education. You know, education. We we we. Our initial education is failing us in in teaching us the survival skills um, and and the situational awareness to keep to keep most of us from from being harmed or to recognize those scenes when they start to go south before they turn actually violent. Um, our initial education is failing in 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 providing us or giving us those tools. Uh, so is it time, beyond that, let me cut you off. Is it time okay. then to add something like Kip T. Sort's Eve class to every single initial yeah. education, just like the fire department do and just like the police department do in their academies? Is it time mm-hmm. that we make this a, a standard part of the curriculum? Yep. I think it, I think it, something, that course or something along those lines needs to be rolled into initial EMS education and and um, and you know and, until that day happens every EMS agency to go seek that training right. uh, whether it's by KIPP or, or any other knowledgeable subject matter expert we need to know how to defend ourselves and not only do we need to know how to defend ourselves we need to know how to avoid having to defend ourselves in other words how to get out of the bad situation right. before it turns violent. A conflict and, resolution and, uh, skills yeah I have to agree exactly. with that you know, and one of the things that is really getting scary, and you and I talk about this a lot, maybe this this is kind of our last point, is that um, this is happening. It's happening. We're starting yeah. to hear about it more and more. And, of course, you know, you're going to come back on me, of course, with the 24-hour news source thing. And I'm going to come back and to say that I think we've just become easy targets. Because another thing in the news that we could talk about is that an ambulance was shot at while it was sitting at the hospital. And we really have to be able to come to a point now to say we're going to start to lose some of our providers if we don't do what we need to do to keep them safer. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm yes, I will come back to you with the with the 24 hour news cycle, the prevalence of social media. And but I'm not going to to extend that to say that um, that it's not a problem. It is a problem. But what I'm my point is, is I think it's been a problem for a long, long time. We're just hearing about it now more than ever um, because of the social media and, and the 24-hour news cycle and, and how well information travels. Um, it, there was a National Registry of EMT survey some time back that, that asked uh, about 
uh, violence against EMS providers, and I think an overwhelming majority of EMS providers in the United States had reported at least one violent attack by a patient, bystander, or family member. Um, heck, even in, in places, and this is not just a U.S. problem, this is a worldwide problem, uh, heck, even in, in Switzerland or in Sweden, I believe, 40-something percent of EMS providers had been attacked while on the job. Um, I, I think this has been a problem for years and years now. Uh, it's just now getting attention because we're hearing about it more. Um, so, so this is not a new thing. This is an old thing, but now we, we know about it. It's time to quit ignoring the problem. It's time to do something to fix it. Yeah, amen. I got to agree with you. Let's go ahead and give you my news story. It has to do with Rural Metro in San Diego was fined $230,000 by the city and is required to submit a plan for improvement. And, you know, the the challenges are that we start to see now is that um, making response time is going to be difficult. Kelly, you and I talk Mm -hmm. about response time all the time. And, you know, we, we point our finger to Detroit and we point our finger to Washington. But really, a lot of the systems in EMS are having challenges meeting response times. And as, you know, the, the states are now going through Medicaid expansion, we're, we're starting to see volume increases and the, the more EDs are getting more people. And, mm-hmm. and what's happening now is by these private providers is that they have contractual uh, compliance that they're going to go ahead and meet their patients' needs in X amount of time frame, 90% of the time. And now when you don't do that, there's going to be some major fines. But my question to you is, is that, is this the challenge now with private privatized EMS or private EMS because they're, they're doing what they can to put butts in the seats and they're worried about the bottom line in between. So are they putting the resources on the street that they need to? Yes, And I don't know if that's true in this case or not, but are they putting the resources on the street that they need to? Are they paying the top dollar that they need to to attract people? Because they're really, they're worried about the P&L. Uh, I, I'll give you the classic lawyer answer. It depends. <laughs> I think it's a, a, a multifaceted problem. Number one, um, EMS providers, when you know agencies like Rural Metro San Diego and, and you know any EMS agency, my employer, AMR, whoever, um, when they submit these RFPs, um, you're trying to outbid the other guy, and a lot of times you you uh, um, you promise them the, the sun, the moon, and the stars, knowing full well that it'll have to be a perfect situation for you to be able to deliver that. Um, now, actually building in. Uh, building in some performance metrics and some some fines and and penalties for not meeting those performance metrics um, is is where these contracts need to go. Uh, But on the other hand, um, I I think we're struggling more and more uh, profession-wide with with meeting the unreasonable expectations that we have fostered for several generations now. Um, We need to get away from this. You need to call an ambulance for every little doohickey, every little or you need to get away from calling an ambulance for every little boo-boo and hangnail, and you call, we haul, that's all. We need to get away from that. Uh, we cannot sustain that level of service, uh, and to promise otherwise I think is irresponsible. I think we need to focus more, focus as much energy on appropriate use of an ambulance rather than just calling for uh, any little thing because it might be a bad thing. Right. Um, well, we cre- so we I think, this, yeah, we created, we created this, this monster. Yeah. And now we got to feed it, um, but we can start weaning it and putting it on a darn diet um, because uh, this this is a monster we created. Right. Um, 
So I, I think it's this up to us to fix it. I think this is where the whole community paramedicine thing becomes, oh, yeah. you know, helpful in the sense of if you have a non-medical emergency and you don't need to go to the hospital, I think those patients either need to be treated at home or they need to be navigated to other places. And, and as a career field, I mean, we did it successfully at my place at Christian. And I think as a career field, we now need to start thinking about navigating the patients that don't need to go to the hospital. Just because they think they need to go doesn't mean that we need to take them now. Uh, the realization is we're still getting compensated for taking people to the hospital. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we're we incentivized is to take these people to the hospital, whether they have a medical emergency or not, because we're receiving reimbursement. Yep. You know, if we're having challenges meeting response times and, you know, talking uh, about the rural metro situation in San Diego, they added 130 hours worth of new shifts per week. Mm -hmm. uh, they plan on bringing that up 200 more hours. You know, they put new paramedics on to try to meet this uh, challenge. So it'll be interesting to see how this is going to work out. But, you know, when you talk about a quarter of a million dollars over a three-month period of time, uh, you know, that's 1.25. Exactly, man. And, and you've got to be able to make those adjustments. And, uh, you know, as it is, which I, I was really kind of remarkable to see. Um, and, and I didn't know this based on the uh, but based on the article, Rural Metro pays the city about $10 million a year for the exclusive rights to provide and bill for the city's EMS service. So on top of the $230,000, they're paying $10 million a year to San Diego to have the right to run the system and to bill their, uh, bill their citizens for it. And I think that that's, I mean, that's some crazy math, man. That's just some uh crazy math. And at, and at one point, at what point does it become a losing proposition and their, their new parent company, uh, uh, AMR, decides to divest themselves of a losing proposition? Yeah, you know, and, and they've been, uh, San Diego has had uh, Rural Metro there for a lot of years, and, and mm -hmm. I have to, in defense of once working at Rural Metro, um, they're, they've delivered good care. Um, and but now we're, we're all victims to these challenges that we're having. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting day in EMS, man. What we knew uh, 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago is not what we're going to know Total tomorrow. Change. And we've yeah. got to be able to change with these times, man. But this is some crazy time. Yeah, I think it goes back to the, the old saying that when it comes to health care, you can have easy access, high quality or low cost. Pick any two. Uh, and I think rural metro in San Diego is finding out right now that uh, uh, it's pretty pretty difficult to provide all three. And and you know anyone who says he can do all three at the same time is either a, a liar or a politician. But then I repeat myself. So, but that's what I think. Uh, that's what Chris thinks. We want to hear what you think. So give us your current concerns, comments, questions, suggestions. Uh, email us at the show at ems1.com. Rate us on iTunes, and for myself and co-host Chris Civilero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.